This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the novel, Who is Rich? First with the author, Matthew Clam, and then with my guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a middle-grade recommendation from our friendly New Haven librarian. Rich Fisher is a cartoonist, a writer, a teacher, a husband, a dad. He is also a has-been, and also ran, a washout, and an adulterer. As the the not-the-most-famous faculty member at a week-long summer arts conference in a bucolic New England town, Rich struggles with all of it. Work, parenting, relationships, life an intensely solipsistic narrator who makes all the wrong choices, Rich still manages to ask all the right questions. Can love and kindness thrive in a marriage pierced by exhaustion, illness, debt? How can we go on, knowing there's no sure way to keep our children safe? Is human connection possible across a gulf of class and wealth? And is making art defensible if it means exposing and maybe destroying those you claim to love? I had the opportunity to speak with author Matthew Clam last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Matthew Clam is the author of the short story collection, Sam the Cat. He has a dog and a daughter, and will be teaching a class called Write Your Head Off at the Southampton Writers' Conference later this month. Who is Rich is his first novel. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, I often like to begin by talking about beginnings. And one thing that struck me here is that even though Rich and Amy's affair is pretty central to your story, we don't hear about it until Chapter 5. And to give some context to our listeners, Amy and Rich, the narrator, met the previous summer when Rich was teaching at this summer arts conference and Amy was attending. They started their affair They texted and emailed and met up once over the course of the ensuing year, and now they're both back at this summer conference. But we don't start with that. We start with some description of the conference, of Rich's class, of his own stalled career, a little about his troubled marriage. Um, And it would have been really easy to start with something like, I'm back here at this conference waiting to meet up with my lover. And I wonder if you could talk a little about your choice not to do that and to bring it in a little bit later. Well, one of the things you learn in the first few pages of the book is about the narrator's struggle in his career and his feeling of of having had his moment a few years earlier and being at a loss sort of for for, uh, uh, his own identity. You're also introduced to the kind of professional colleagues that he teaches with every summer at this conference, and some of them are extremely well-known sort of household names. There's a guy who won a Nobel Prize, and there are also people who are sort of less well-known. And these people are all sort of surrounding him, and I, I, it was important for me to get across kind of the uh, landscape of the conference. So it's not just, and it's not just the faculty that you're sort of getting to know in the first 40 or 50 pages. You're also getting to know the students, and I think for a lot of the students, this place, and also for the narrator, this place is a sort of, you know, we, I'm just interrupting myself for a second, we spend our lives with these kind of really carefully articulated personas, the ones that we use around our family and 
coworkers and neighbors and those things are very helpful and they, 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 they're part of how we socialize in the world, but there is another side to us. And I think that's sort of what a lot of the people who attend this conference are exploring. And the faculty in some ways are exploring it too. We're all just focused when we're out at this conference on the one thing that we love. So for somebody, it might be, you know, I just want to get up on stage and read my poem. I just want to get back into landscape painting. Um, and so I wanted to get in touch with some of that feeling, too, because it's potentially sort of easily missed, I guess, by some people who are kind of aghast at the the ethical or moral question, you know, that's in the middle of this book, which is, you know, how how can I be okay with rooting for this guy who is conducting, you know, an adulterous affair? And one of the things I wanted to get across was that, you know, these people have reached a point in their life where parenting and marriage, mortgage, you know, keeping up their house and their domestic life or whatever has really, they're a little bit lost. And for some reason, this affair is something that allows them to feel listened to and seen and known and appreciated in a way that they haven't been getting from the other side of their life. And it in some ways, their adulterous affair is a kind of flip side to what's, or it's a sort of another aspect of this kind of second self that people indulge in at this conference. So other people are there to indulge in their artistic side. These people have that, but they also have this kind of, you know, erotic alter ego that they're really interested in connecting to. They're interested in connecting to their own bodies again and to their own feelings of passion. They're they're both, I think, in love with love, the idea of love, maybe more. They don't know each other that well, but they're really swept up in this thing. But I did need some time to kind of lead up to that idea. So you said, you know, that some people, some readers have trouble asked with this question of how can I root for this person who is making some morally questionable choices? And I was curious about how much that mattered to you, whether or not your reader is rooting for this person? You know, I didn't really have a choice. I mean, I'm a certain kind of person. I sort of require strong medicine in order to be influenced by another person. I don't go for feel-good stories as much as some people might. And, and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. 15 years ago, I wrote a cover story for the New York Times Magazine on the drug Ecstasy. Ecstasy is still one of the most popular, if not the most popular party drug on the planet. And 15 years before that, when I was in college and Ecstasy had not yet been illegal, I had used it a few times and then and, and liked it and realized what it was supposed to be and I, I didn't let it kind of uh, influence me too much. But when I wrote this article, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't chastising anyone who thought it was good. I wanted to make sure that I was talking to people who already were convinced that it was sort of the answer. I wanted to reach them. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm the kind of person who actually would fall for the idea that an affair is the answer. And I wanted to reach the kind of reader who's also felt that, who has felt that kind of magic on whatever level. And I knew that I wasn't going to reach people who have never entertained those thoughts. I'm just not that kind of person. I have a more maybe jaded or darker personality or something like that. 
Um, and I knew that I wanted to speak to people who it's entered their mind before to entertain the possibility that there is someone out there who can bring them a kind of happiness and a kind of self-actualization that they aren't getting anywhere else, that it's still out there somewhere. That's the sort of desperate kind of exciting thing that I think the narrator and so Rich and, and Amy, the woman who he's involved in, are up to. And it was really thrilling for me to get involved in that whole mindset because I'm, I think that way sometimes. So I loved having them really mean it. You know, they both have a lot at stake. They both have fully entangled, domestically, you know, uh, charged lives. They're both parents and they're both spouses and they both have, you know, they, they cook and clean and keep their, their, their partners, you know, sane with their um, attention and all that kind of stuff. And I knew that there was a lot of risk for them and I wanted to put them at risk and I wanted to make what they were risking it for seem possibly like something you as a reader might entertain too. You just, you, I think you see that they're struggling for something that, that um, at least at, in glimpses seems, you know, worth it for moments. You know, I read an early review that referred to Rich as an anti-hero um, uh, and I was curious about your reaction to that because to me, I mean, I guess it kind of depends on your interpretation of that word, but to me, that did suggest someone whose actions one might condemn, which is kind of contrary to what you're saying, which is someone whose actions one can empathize with. So I wonder if you would call him an antihero. Well, I wouldn't because I don't think in those terms. And I've taught writing a lot. I just finished teaching. I was a professor at Johns Hopkins for seven years, and I almost never use like literary terminology because I think people are human beings are natural storytellers and we already know how to tell a story. We don't need to have it explained to us what the value is of a setting or of a landscape or um, of uh, uh, an, a hero or an anti-hero. We just understand those concepts implicitly. Also, I guess for myself, I should say, I was just interested in these few people, the narrator, his love interest, his wife, the love interest's husband, the children, some of the people at the conference. I just focused on them. I wanted to be as honest as I possibly could. And I never thought in terms of, I mean, I did think, you know, if a person does this, who will I lose? You know, mm -hmm. what reader will read it up to page 120 and then say, uh, -uh I'm not going any further. Sure. You think about that all the time. And that's why, I don't write with an outline. I write sort of this sentence and then the next sentence and then the one after that. And if I can't pull off the sentence that comes after that, I know I can't keep going. So I did struggle at times thinking, you know, am I turning? I mean, I clearly am turning in this direction. Is that okay? Who am I going to lose here? And I know, you know, I've already, you know, I've gotten the sense that, I mean, I always knew this is a, this is a story about, you know, uh, um, a straight white man who is not in his youth who has a lot of complaints and, and that right there is enough to lose some readers. I just, I had to write from my strongest sense of what was important to me. And so that's, that's where I started. I also felt though that it was really important 
bring the women characters to life three-dimensionally, and I thought I did an okay job of that. And I think, to be fair, for a lot of this story, the narrator has insight into other people's suffering and their lives as well. His wife has been... She had trauma in her childhood. She lost a sibling. She became a a, a war a journalist. She traveled all over Latin America. She became a TV producer after that and has created nature documentaries and things. And he has a lot of insight into her sort of struggle. The, his love interest is also someone who, you know, she's in a marriage that isn't great. She's a, the wife of a billionaire. She's a powerful philanthropist. She has all these projects that she's really involved in. And he has a lot of empathy for both of them. And that, I think, helps redeem some of his limitations, or I hope, anyway. You know, you mentioned that you feel like people are natural storytellers, that we all are. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of storytelling, and specifically in relationship to Rich, who is also a a novelist, a graphic novelist. But he has always, he's very open about the fact that he has mined his own life for his writing, and that in doing so, he's destroyed a lot of relationships, and he's lost a lot of friends by having written about them. And he struggles a lot in the novel with this question of how you can make art without damaging your own life or hurting the people around you. And I guess I'm curious about how you as a writer negotiate that. Well, you know, anytime you write in the first person and you use a narrator who's got some similarity to yourself, there will be readers who assume that the narrator is you and that everything you're saying is true. And there's sort of no way around the fact that some readers are going to think that. And there are other readers who don't care. I mean, I, I actually wonder which reader I am because I've studied that photograph of Hemingway in Pamplona and everyone in the photograph has a sort of a version of themselves in The Sun Also Rises. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind myself that in that photograph, there were there were three writers. There was Hemingway. There was, um, I'm forgetting his name now. He has three names, but he was an Oscar-winning screenwriter. And there was his other friend, Henry Loeb, who was a novelist and an essayist, who is the, the character that um, Robert Cohn is, is modeled after. And yet Hemingway was the only one to have pulled it off. So I guess the thing is, it's something that I think about a lot. I was very conscious of it from the beginning, writing this book. And and the narrator is teaching a class called Semi-Autobiographical Comics. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that the reader knew, that I knew, that I was introducing this idea and struggling with this idea in front of the reader and giving them some insight into my own struggle as a writer. So, and and there are plenty of fiction writers who don't have, you know, who don't draw off of their own experiences to the extent that I do in their work. But even for them, it's impossible for a fiction writer to write without coloring what they think and see with their own perceptions and distortions. I mean, there's, there is no way to sort of completely duplicate reality in a piece of writing, not even in a piece of, you know, front page New York Times journalism. 
and there's no way to to write a piece of fiction that isn't some in some ways influenced by you know the writer's own experience it's impossible to to separate yourself from your own very unique you know and distorted perceptions of the world so that stuff is all in there i mean i'm not maybe directly answering your question i'm sort of talking around it a little bit because it's something that i've struggled with a lot and i've i've thought about a lot and i've sort of studied in other writers and i see that there there is simply no easy way for me and i think for a lot of writers to divorce ourselves from our work when we're creating fiction we're in there and where there are parts of us that are visible in there and you know i hope that I don't offend anyone. I've had conversations in the past with people who have influenced characters of mine, but I do have like a big, healthy social life and mm-hmm. lots of friends, some of whom have even helped me with, you know, by I borrowed elements of their personalities to create characters and I'm still speaking to them. But partly it's because I'm really honest about it and they kind of go toward rather than away from somebody who I might be starting to think about as a character. Like I'll talk to them sometimes, and I'll ask them questions sometimes, and I'll sort of let them know either directly or indirectly that I'm really curious about something that they're up to, you know, and they, uh, you know, seem to be okay with that. (laughs) Well, you know, I had the novelist Jamie Attenberg on the show a few months ago, and she Uh uh, recently, shortly after being on the show, I think, wrote a piece in the New York Times called Stop Reading My Fiction as the Story of My Life. Right. And in it, she talked about how much she hates, quote, the presumption of autobiography as applied to my work. Right. But what I found so interesting about this book was that in some ways I felt like it was inviting us to do that. Or maybe I'm saying that wrong. It's more that there's this repeated acknowledgement on the part of Rich that readers want to know the facts behind the story. Right. And which kind of felt like you as the author speaking through Rich sort of saying, yeah, I know you're going to do this. Bring it on. Like that's what readers do. Um, And so I wonder if, you know, if then when, to the extent that readers do that, if how, how you react. That's, that's how I react. (laughs) I talk about some of the stuff that we're talking about right now, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess maybe part of the question is if you feel like that is a forgivable impulse on the part of the reader. Well, I, I think that no, I, I think it's more than forgivable. I think it would be. Abs- I, I think I, you know, no offense to Jamie Anberg, I think what she's saying is absurd. I mean, I think of course we're seeing parts of her in her work, and we're not. I mean, I don't know because I haven't read this new book. But when I read, it's sort of you know there are, there are certain writers who I can feel them holding this hot material in their hands when they're working. And I can, I think I can tell the difference between somebody who's working out something that's based in autobiographical experience and someone who isn't. Somewhat, I think. And so I get very wrapped up in that too as a reader, and I get very excited about that also as a reader. I One of my first experiences as a serious, more serious fiction writer... You know, I started writing, and I went to, uh, oh, I, it was the first reading I ever saw was Tim O'Brien reading from The Things They Carried. And he oh, do you know reading. that that is my favorite book in the world, and that I mention it on this show all the time? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> um, it's like, well, to you know, here. so you and, you, you and me, well, I mean, we're in a club. I mean, it's, it's a bigger club than, than I, we both probably acknowledge, but I mean, 
I'm you obsessed know, that with that book. I read it when I was 17. I always say it changed my life. It changed my life too. And I, and you know, there's a, there's a narrator named Tim O'Brien mm-hmm. or a main character named Tim O'Brien. The author is named Tim O'Brien. He dedicates the book, as you know, all this stuff to a fictitiously named, you know, uh, squad, yes. whatever he calls them, his platoon. His platoon yeah. And, um, when I, that summer I was a waiter scholar at Breadloaf and he read or maybe he read from it the summer before and I heard the story. That might have been what happened. And then I talked to him about it because I was very into him that summer and I hung out with him. I think that's what it was. He was reading from something new the next summer that became In the Lake of the Woods. Which but, is also a great book. Yeah. So the summer before he read at Breadloaf and he read and people were shocked. Or maybe it was two years before. They, they were like some of the readers, some of the listeners were shocked and they, some of them were journalists and they were like, you what? Your narrator is named Tim O'Brien, but this is fiction. And there was another group in the audience who I tend to think were more of the fiction writer group who were like, what time is, is dinner? Like, who cares? You know? And I think it's sort of, you know, there's definitely a part of me that feels that way about The Sun Also Rises and lots of other books that have been drawn from a person's, you know, real experience. Like, I don't really care how much of this is, I mean, to say that it's true or not true is in a little it's sort of absurd how much of it did the did the author think he was drawing from his own experience that's sort of a, it is an interesting question and we're just kind of talking around it now but in the end it doesn't matter nobody could do what Hemingway did with that material right and I mean the thing that I love about the things they carried is how openly it plays with that question you know how much he he constantly tricks you starts the story by saying this is true and then you turn the page to the next chapter and he says, that was all made up because right. he is, he's so he's so openly saying, you know, what he says at one point, you know, the facts don't always equal the truth. And right. you just keep writing it until you get to what feels true, even if that doesn't match what the facts always were, which I find such an interesting question as a reader. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if you wanted to make a character who is exactly like, uh, you know, if you wanted a fictional Hemingway in your in your own novel. It's just, once you set that character down, you have all kinds of other narrative demands. You have to figure out what the scene is about. You have to figure out what this person's voice sounds like and what their motivations are. You have to figure out what they say and do next. As soon as you get struck, stuck in that kind of set of considerations, you're drifting away from what you know about Hemingway. You're drifting away from what you've read about him. And instead, you're struggling to create a character that's going to hold the scene together. So even when you want to do it, even when you, as a devious author, are thinking that you're playing a trick on some real person out in the world, you're already losing some connection to that character because you're stuck with your own set of problems in making the character real and interesting. You know, it's just, it's it, 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 for people who think this person lived a certain set of experiences and then wrote a novel about it. Try to imagine something much smaller, which is you have to write an email to your, your kid's math teacher and the kids saw the math teacher be cruel to another kid or was, not helping your kid and you're sitting there and you're writing this letter and it takes you three days or whatever. It takes you hours because you don't want to get the teacher fired. 
you want to see if you can get the facts right, but you actually don't know all the facts, and you realize that your own tone is essential in getting the message across. Those problems multiplied enormously are the kind of problems that we, that fiction writers struggle with all the time. So even though you've got a sort of straight-ahead idea that you think you can execute, which is, you know, I experienced something like this, or I witnessed something like this, or someone told me I happen to be one of those people who people tell a lot of things to, and I, and I also have a mind that can't help but imagine all sorts of unsavory and, you know, risque kinds of ideas. You know, even if you wanted to set that stuff down, once you start writing, you're, you're struck with a set of demands that force you into all kinds of, you know, these considerations of craft and plot and stuff like that. And I think, you know, I'm so, uh, it's a relief to be talking to someone who loves the things they carry because I think Tim was trying to say, it drives me a little crazy what people think I did in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to play with that idea until I'm exhausted. Because, and, and what is he doing? What's the end effect? The end effect is one where you sympathize with the author who's attempting to tell a story almost as much as you're sympathizing with this poor kid who went over there at 19 and had to be a soldier in this awful war. And I think that's some of what I'm trying to do, too, in this book, which is to help the reader understand in a meta way what a struggle it is to draw upon one's experiences and try to create some kind of story out of it. I mean, you know, Grace Paley said, any story told twice is fiction. You listen to memoirists talk about their connection to the truth and to the facts, and you, you find that they're having, they're speaking a whole language that I don't know about their own decisions. You know, any time you make, I mean, ask anyone who's ever been written about the profile never lives up to their expectations in a way because it can't, because you have to diminish a human being in order to write about them. People don't like to be written about because choices are made by the author immediately. You know, Once you start making choices, and it happens on the front page of the New York Times, look at what's going on in our country right now. We have a half of this country that doesn't believe the other half, and we're all reading, you know, we're reading two sets of news, different sets of news. Journalists have to make decisions about what they include. Fiction writers have to make decisions about what they include. And then they begin to shape an experience. And that experience takes on different colors and distortions and has certain things excised. Other things are raised up, you know, and it's, um, and, and suddenly, and, and what you hope as the writer is that you've maintained some connection to the heart of what you wanted to get across, even while you are being buffeted around by these other storytelling forces. Well, I just want to push you a tiny bit more on the first question I asked, though, which is this this question that Rich struggles with, you know, how how much you tell if you know that doing so might hurt other people. So it's not just a question of exposing yourself, but of knowing that it might do that it might do damage. And without without getting into, you know, specifics of of this novel or of your life, I just wonder again how you how you navigate that. You sit down to write and you, the things you want to draw on are the things that have most emotionally impacted you, but those are also likely the things that may be most likely to cause pain. And do you just decide you're going to write them anyway? Uh my wife is a psychoanalyst and she believes in no-holds-barred self-expression and self-exploration. So she happens to be married to someone 
who has never written a piece of fiction that wasn't about transgressive sex. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that everything I've written um, has pleased her, but I think she understands and is and works with people. She understands that to hold in a fantasy is come also has a set of problems that go along with it. To release that or to explore that fantasy has another is also it can be problematic. But it's it's I think she, what she would hope is that a person would bravely venture into exploration and self-expression. And, and, and so she is someone who, like, I keep in mind when I think of taking risks in my fiction, knowing that what I'm saying on the page is potentially disruptive to our understanding of, like, you know, who we are as uh, partners in life. And, and that guides me, and it helps me be brave and be a little bit of a madman on the page. So, you know, I, I've, of course, I've thought, I've, I worried about, you know, offending people. Um, my, I have an, an aunt who's, uh, she's, uh, my name is Matt, her name is Maddie. And uh, she, she, for years she's joked about a character uh, who she would refer to as my big fat Aunt Patty, who would appear in a short story of mine or something like that. And she's made a joke about it. So, you know, she's a family member who actually goes, in, gets into my face and makes a joke about it. And I've actually tried, or I used to try to see if I could figure out a way to put a dear, a fat Aunt Patty in one of my stories just to get her to laugh, you know, or mm -hmm. be mad at me or whatever. Anyway, you know, so I, I, I am trying, though, to upset people, I think, in some ways. I live a very conventional life. I try to be a model of good behavior for my daughter. I coached her soccer team for years. All of her friends pretty much know me really well and feel extremely comfortable around me. I'm aware that one day they'll be reading or some might stumble across and it might be really soon, you know, some things I've written. I ha I'm in a community. I'm a good neighbor. I'm very close friends with the people who, I, who's, uh, who, who live on this street. But there's another side to me. And I hope that when I say things that are unsayable <laughs> or unpalatable or antisocial that I'll be bringing some people along and I'll invite them to also express themselves or I'll realize that I have then entered into like some kind of bond with people who were waiting to open up to me and when they read my unexpurgated sometimes antisocial sometimes risque or sexual thoughts they then realize they can set down their defenses and put aside some of that carefully constructed persona and be more real with me. Well, Matt, this has been great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Sure. Thank you. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. Annie is a high school English teacher, and Jessica runs a nonprofit here in New Haven. They both have appeared numerous times on Book Talk, most recently discussing Susan Parabo's novel, The Fall of Lisa Bellow. Annie and Jessica, great to have you back. Thanks, Sid. It's always a pleasure. I want to start by reading one of my favorite passages, which comes at the very end of the book on page 320. 
Rich says to us, the reader, there's no such thing as a reliable narrator. There's more reliable and less reliable. But any light that passes through that lens is shaped, bent, divided. You willingly create distortions, and those distortions are misleading. Designed to stir up, revise, reverse, undo, shift, shape, sing. A story is an interrogation, an act of aggression, a flirtation. It's slippery, squirrely, and rascally. And I wanted to ask you both how you felt about Rich as a character throughout this novel, and if this kind of final acknowledgement of his own unreliability made him any more redeemable to you if you felt that he needed to be redeemed. So it's interesting. I, um, I listened to your author interview, uh, and it, it made me think a lot about this question of reliability. And I, I found myself going back, actually, to what Rich ends up saying about Salito, because Salito, uh, Angel Salito, or Angel, is this rising star who is everything Rich used to be and wished he was and has created this story, which um, initially Rich is very envious of, in part because the raw material is so powerful and strong. But then there's this interesting moment on page 312 where he hears people criticizing Salito for maybe having made some things up and for having changed some names. And Rich says this thing that, for me, made me think differently a little bit about Rich himself. He says, I didn't want to hear what they, these critics, thought. Salito had been given the opportunity to actualize his dreams, and then he'd handed those dreams over to literary critics, professional cranks whose only means of support was to shred the work of others. And it made me think that at the end of the day, as Matthew Clam talks about so beautifully in his interview, it's less about whether the raw material is true, but whether you're able to create something that has in some way a different truth and a different resonance for others. And that when we tear the story apart because of what may or may not be factually accurate, we're to some extent missing the point. That's really interesting. And I think that for me, part of the Part of what interested me about this book, and particularly on rereading and thinking about Rich, because I don't really like Rich as a character, and especially my first read through, you know, when Matthew Clem talked with you in the interview about about how you know he's a straight white male writer who's who's writing about you know his own insecurities or or, or insecurities of people like him. And, and that's not for every reader. I was like, you're right. I'm not really his reader <laughs> in most ways. But in terms of this question of art and this question of what it what we create art from and what it takes, what we can take from our own experience to create art and then how much of the creation of art has to be founded on the actual experience and how much can be twisted and played with. I think he's he's talking about twisting and playing with it in that passage that you read, Sid, but there's there's a very strong sense for me throughout the book that Rich believes, and perhaps that Clam believes, that art is best and most real when it does have this kernel that's coming from real experience. And that Rich feels on some level that his own life experience isn't maybe good enough or painful enough or strong enough stuff to be transmuted into art. And that's why he's so interested in taking the experiences of other 
people in his life and transmuting those into art, you know, taking Robin's stories, his wife's stories, or looking at his illicit affair with Amy as providing material that he can then work with. I mean, I, I really do think he feels like you have to have some level of real experience to use to create really good art. I think that's a really fantastic point. And what it makes me think about is that, you know, I was talking about this question of, of truth in art, but I think there's another question, which is the extent to which Rich is or is not honest with himself, right? I mean, his art can only be honest if he's willing to look at his own life honesty, honestly. And, and I think this idea that he is generating material, I mean, in some sense, even the affair, right? He describes this affair as a love affair, and yet it didn't read to me as the way I'm used to defining or thinking about love, right? So um, this whole idea of his own emotional honesty and the extent to which he's generating drama in his own life to produce art is really, really interesting. That very much resonates with me too, Annie. There's a line on page 114 where he talks about you know his own anxiety about writing his story. And he says, a semi-autobiographical story told in arty-farty black and white panels of a heterosexual white guy, contemporary daddy under stress, needed a reason for being, a plot, a hook. And you very much feel there that, yes, unlike Salito, he feels like he doesn't have the material, that this is not good enough to be written about. And I almost felt like the affair was the the, the plot, the hook you need to generate the mo motion to keep the story going. But the real story is the story of people who feel isolated, people who are seeking human connection and are feeling unable to find it, who find that there's so many things that divide us, whether it's wealth or class or just the you know, the everyday domestic duties that end up separating us instead of keeping us apart. And one's feeling about, you know, one's own place in the world and what one produces. There's there's kind of a, a deep sense of, of, of nihilism that I felt like runs through the book where he says, you know, I'm going to, at the at the end, right after that passage on page 320 that I read, he says something about, you know, I'll produce this work and then I'll give it away. And, you know, you write this book, you, you write your graphic, no, your, your graphic novel, and then you put it out there in the world, and, and then what? And he says that about his kids, too. You know, like, you raise them, you put this love and care and attention into them, and then they leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of sense of despair and not knowing what, like, the purpose is also really drives this book. And for a lot of it, in the beginning especially, I had the same reaction you did, Annie, which was I felt like, you know, there was being so much sort of um, energy, emotional energy being put into the story of this person whose life really isn't all that bad. And it felt solipsistic and blinkered in a way that kind of bothered me. But the further I got, the more I felt that it was that I could relate to it, even within its kind of very narrow field of vision, that the emotions that he is talking about are ones that transcend his own experience. And I also felt that his own grappling with his kind of the, the narrowness of his experience and whether or not it was worth writing about, mm -hmm. that kind of level of self-consciousness was important for me within the book. 
I agree with you there. And I think that, that ultimately part of what's going on with Angel Salido is the same thing that is going on with Rich. That um, I think that Clam sort of puts out there this idea that Salido has a more real story or is that Robin as a war correspondent has a more real story. And then he punctures that idea. You know, there's this conversation between Salido and Rich on 216 where they're talking about the, the, the difficulties of teaching people how to write stories. And Salido says, can't teach the story that's in you that has to come out. And so there's this the, the same idea that the real story has to do with your own experience on some level. But then Salito also just a few pages later is clearly worried about what he's going to write next. He says, but it's also singular, my heartbreaking childhood, my continental trek, like I had a choice. It's not anything I can duplicate. And so again, there's that same idea of like, oh shoot, maybe I, I used up my story and what do I do after that? And then later in the book, you find Rich kind of trying to justify his own idea that he can use his affair with Amy to make art, that that is a valid way to engender more creation for him. And he says, he's sort of justifying the realness of his own ideas in comparison to Salito's ideas, particularly. He says, but until the day people stopped wishing they could cram their spouse into a dumpster, my story was relevant too. Until we stopped accepting the destructive force of monogamy, until we stopped constructing other selves in secret, I had the edge. My story had yet to be told. And it, that read to me like a very strong self-justification and almost kind of like a cry, like my story matters too. And in a way that, that really did ultimately work for me as a reader. And so, so I mean, I come away not loving Rich exactly, but, but sort of feeling like, yeah, this, this, this is a struggle that I can understand. And our stories, different stories are relevant. This makes me think of, 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 of something that resonated for me when I reread the book, because, you know, for me, one of the most frustrating things in reading this book was it wasn't just the solipsism. It was the essential selfishness of the characters and how very small their worlds were and how little they seemed to care about people beyond their immediate spheres. But this idea of telling story and enabling other people to tell their story made me think about Rich's relationship to his students, which is something that he doesn't think that much about, right? And yet you get the sense that in some ways he's really a good teacher and that he, through giving them an opportunity to tell their stories, is actually doing something profound. There's this moment on page 274 where one of his students, Carol, writing about a very traumatic experience, is able to put this story down on paper for the first time and she says, recovery takes place, healing takes place. And I thought, you know, there is a way in which Rich is giving a gift back to other people. It's not necessarily in the way he thinks about, but that he's doing something really important for the students in his care. Yeah, one thing that was interesting I found in this book was, you know, the fact that it's written in the first person means that we don't have a lot of distance on Rich. And so 
we are kind of limited to his own consciousness of his self. And in some ways, he is maybe even harder on himself than a third-person narrator might be. So he, I don't think, sees himself doing that for his students. And we have to really look for it. Because I think you're right. I think it's there. But he's not willing to give himself that credit, which is, frankly, to the good. Because I think if we saw him patting himself on, his, on the back there, we, we might judge him even more for his shortcomings. But I think that he is often very aware of the ways he's failing people. And that doesn't make it better, but it makes it, again, more relatable, I think. Jessica, I was interested by what you said earlier about the love story between him and Amy and how it didn't feel to you like a love story in the way you think about that. And I wonder if you could talk a little more about that. So a couple of things. Uh, one is that we hear a lot about these deep, impassioned emails that they send. But really, the only place where you get vivid, vivid descriptions of their interactions have to do with sex, which is great. But I, I guess I need to know about more than that um, to see a genuine connection. The other is that, and perhaps this is me superimposing, I really did not like her or find her compelling as a character which made me feel that I was perceiving her through Rich's own sort of tortured, ambivalent lens. I did not see what it was in her that he was drawn to. That doesn't mean you can only love someone likable, but that you would think that in a lover's description of the beloved, that compelling quality would come through. And for me, it really did not. I think that part of what he's attracted to in Amy is also what he's attracted to in Robin, which is a combination of immense strength and intense pain. When they first start sleeping together, when he and Robin first start sleeping together, it's right after she's had this concussion and that she's incredibly vulnerable. And she was so vulnerable and open. I wished we could always live that way, he says. And when he meets Amy again at this conference, the fact of her strength and um, when he first sees her, he seems to talk about her as if he's as if the affair is over, as if they're not about to get back into it. And it's only after she breaks her arm and then she's physically vulnerable and then kind of mentally vulnerable again that they get back together and have all of that injured arm on pain medication sex. <laughs> right. So so I think that there's something about the vulnerability of otherwise very strong women and perhaps women who he sees as stronger than himself that is very attractive to him. He, he writes a lot about their pain and then he takes Amy's pain medication. So it's like he sort of is taking care of her, but then he's also taking her pain medication so she, when she needs the rest of it later, it's not there. <laughs> Is that really love or is that kind of desire for story or is it just desire for physical connection? It's hard to know. Well, I think it's all of those things. And I also think, I think there's a way in which some of it is just the feeling that you have somebody's full attention. So I don't think we need to see those emails because the content isn't really important. It's more, and he says this at one point, it's more this sense that you can send that email or that text and you know that someone is waiting to get it and you, someone is excited to read it, that your thoughts matter to someone, that you you are more than just the person who is there to like change the diaper 
or, you know, do the, the breakfast dishes that you feel seen. And I think that, you know, is often the impulse behind his writing as well and his illustration is this desire to be seen. And that's something that we all, all feel. And that is then coupled with all of these other things, which is, you know, not just to be seen, but to be held, to be touched, things that at this stage of his life he feels that he is lacking and that are maybe a normal part of that life stage, but don't make it any easier to do without. And so it almost didn't matter to me, you know, who Amy was or whether or not we liked her because it was more about this desire for the idea of her. And I think it also connects with this this love of beginnings, the idea of something new, that when something starts, there is the possibility that anything can happen, that everything is possible. And when you're in the middle, doors have closed and not everything is possible anymore. And I think that also has to do with his writing. He's almost afraid to start something because when he's at this moment before he starts the first drawing, anything is possible. But once he starts putting something down on the page, he is shutting himself in. And what if it isn't good enough? What if it doesn't want people want to see? What if it doesn't matter beyond himself? And so I saw that connection between what's going on with the affair and what's going on with him in terms of his heart. So that just brought something up to me that was a connection I, I hadn't made before, which is about producing art and about producing children and about, you know, the joyfulness of the beginning. And then who was it who said that there is no desire so simple in the wanting and so complicated in the execution as having a child, right? And so... Um, <laughs> There is this theme throughout the book, right? He and Robin are with friends who desperately want children and then they have a child, you know, but then there are all the complications and it's the same with his art. So there are these two moments on page 22. He talks about what it must feel like for Robin to have had this baby. And she says, he says, first a guy sticks something in you, then a thing grows inside your body eventually it tears its way out, leaving a trail of destruction, which is one of the grimmest descriptions of childbirth I've ever heard. But it's echoed in this funny way at the end of the book in what was for me the saddest moment, because I kept thinking, well, at least he can create his art, right? Which is his great joy. But he says at the very end of the book on page 321, I imagine myself years into the future, you referred to this before, Sid, and felt the inevitable letdown of having produced anything at all, of putting myself into it and giving it away. So the joy of creation, but then the complication and almost despair of letting that thing go out into the world is a tension that for me is really present in the book. You know, a lot of the blurbs on the back of this book describe it as funny. And I wondered what your reaction was to that. I found it darkly funny. <laughs> Salito describes Rich's work as uh, a, something about a bumbling anti-hero, and I felt like looking at it in that way that there's a sort of there's a humor in the kind of bumbling through trying to figure out what he's doing. Sort of there's, there's a kind of a slapstick to parts of it. Yes, that I thought was funny, and and we haven't talked yet at all about Amy's diamond earrings, but I mean that whole episode of of like having the earring there's something comic about like him driving to different jewelry stores and and trying to um 
to get a price for them and then deciding to send them back to her and then throwing them into the ocean and then digging for them wildly. And, you know, so, I mean, it's a very dark humor, but I think it's, it's humor. (laughs) I personally found it too sad to be funny. And the earrings in particular, I must admit, drove me absolutely crazy, I think, because he had spoken throughout about how she has all these resources and she wastes all these resources. And then he's essentially handed or or steals or somehow comes into possession of these resources. And instead of giving them back or helping his family or making a donation, a charity, for goodness sakes, he throws them away. And I really just wanted to strangle him at that point. I found it very frustrating. Well, okay. So I I was going over that because I also was like, I had to reread that page twice. I was like, wait, what did he just do? He threw, what, what? And then I was wondering, even if you can read the stories, I'm sorry, if you can read earrings, if you can read the diamond earrings as a metaphor for story in some way, is stealing Amy's diamonds like stealing her story? Is it him sort of turning over the, the should I use somebody else's life, somebody else's story, should I use it to benefit myself? Should I just return the story to her? And then kind of, you know, in in that light, if you see it as, as a metaphor in that way, is there a positive aspect to him just kind of throwing them away instead of choosing to use them to enrich himself? But, you know, I guess I'm left wondering if there's hope for Rich in his marriage and what his future is going to be. And I I like to think there is. So this moment on 304 when he's on the phone with Rob and he's terrified that his world is going to come apart. She's going to see how much money he spent. It's going to be a disaster. And instead, you know, this is the upside of marriage. They talk about laundry. And he says, were we safe? Was someone coming to destroy us? She had loads of work to do. The sooner I got home, the better. And so I hope that Rich is able to go home and and partner with Robin and make a good life for his family. And I'll just end with one final passage, uh, which relates to that too, on page 301. What if I was forgivable? What if this was just a phase? What if in a few months things improved? What if underneath it all she wanted what I wanted? What if, in the meantime, our needs for intimacy were mostly being met by our children? What if we'd been temporarily blown off course and still had a bright future ahead of us, with some acceptable level of insistent sadness woven into the fabric of time? And I felt like the answers to all that questions were possibly yes. Like, yes, maybe this is just a hard period of life that you go through, and you can forgive each other, and there will always be some sadness, but it will go to a manageable level. And if we kind of go back to that image of the diamond earrings, you know, maybe he is throwing away love or maybe what he's doing there is trying to save the things he loves by throwing them away. And I think it's complicated and the book doesn't leave us with a clearly optimistic point of view, but, uh, but it leaves us with a very nuanced, you know, possibility for what might, what might happen next. So Annie and Jessica, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sid. Thanks, Sid. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5. Next up, New Haven librarian Sharon Breslow recommends We Are All Wonders by R.J. Palacio. 
This is librarian Sharon Breslow from the Young Minds and Family Learning Department of the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here today to talk about a new picture book written and illustrated by R.J. Palacio entitled We're All Wonders. Many of you will recognize the author's name. She is the author of Wonder, Augie and Me, and 365 Days of Wonder. Like in her juvenile novels, the story of We're All Wonders features the character Augie. He is a boy who feels ordinary, he does ordinary things, but he doesn't look ordinary. The book's illustrations portray a boy with a facial deformity. His mom says that he's unique, that he is a wonder. The problem is that he is not always seen that way by the other children. He sees the stairs and hears the unkind words spoken behind his back. To cope, he imagines himself blasting off into outer space, all the way to Pluto with his beloved dog Daisy. It is only by looking at the Earth from a distance does he see his place in the world. He realizes that we are all different. He can't change the way he looks, but if others change how they view him, they would realize that Augie is a wonder. In fact, if we look at the world with kindness, we'll discover that we're all wonders. There's this idea of kindness towards others, which fits into the theme of this year's summer learning challenge, which is build a better world. The New Haven Free Public Library Summer Learning Challenge is for children and teens. You can sign up this summer at the library or online. It runs through August 31st. Simply choose how many minutes you want to challenge yourself to read this summer and visit us for a great variety of books for all ages. When you reach the halfway point of your goal, you'll receive a book. At the end of the summer, upon completing your goal, you'll receive a t-shirt. For more information about the Summer Learning Challenge, visit the library's website at nhfpl.org. Thanks, and have a great summer. Thanks, Sharon. On our next show, airing July 26th, we'll be talking about the novel The Leavers, first with the author, Lisa Coe, and then with my guests, Emily Moore and Christopher Jansma. Chris first appeared on our show talking about his own novel, Why We Came to the City, now out in paperback, and he liked it so much he asked to come back as a guest reader. Don't miss it. In the meantime, if you're looking for other good summer reads, check out all the books we've done on our website, booktalkradio.net. As ever, you can share your thoughts about this episode or any other on Facebook or Twitter, or by emailing me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>